Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the House Committee on the January 6th, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol heard more than a thousand witness interviews and held multiple public hearings, resulting in criminal referrals to the Justice Department for Donald Trump, lawyer John Eastman, and others involved in violent efforts to override the results of Trump's election loss. The committee released transcripts showing some two dozen witnesses invoking their right against self-incrimination. Eastman, key advisor to Trump on how to overturn the election, cited his Fifth Amendment right 155 times. At one point, Democratic House member Jamie Raskin asked GOP operative Roger Stone if he believed coups are allowed in our constitutional system, to which Stone said, quote, I most definitely decline to respond to your question, close quote. But the headwinds that the committee's recommendations face are not just from the MAGA hatters, but also some of the very smart people who will tell us that our desire for justice is really just partisan, or worse, bloodlust. And what we really ought to do, what intelligent people would do, is, well, nothing. Let wiser minds prevail. We're having none of that. We spoke with Lisa Gilbert. She's executive vice president of Public Citizen and co-founder of the Forged for Purpose, Not Above the Law Coalition. We talked about what the hearings found and why it can't end there. That's coming up this week on Counterspin, but first a look back at some recent press. In recent weeks, Elon Musk has, this is not an exhaustive list, silenced Twitter accounts of several anti-fascist organizers and journalists after right-wing operatives appealed directly to Musk to ban them and reopened far-right accounts, including that of the publisher of the Nazi Daily Stormer. He's eliminated Twitter's Trust and Safety Council, the advisory group of some 100 independent civil and human rights groups that the company formed to address hate speech. He's enforced an anti-union stance. When janitors at Twitter's San Francisco headquarters went on strike, a top Musk lieutenant allegedly told a fired member of the cleaning staff that his job would be done by robots. Musk has threatened to sue Twitter employees who leak information about the company, never mind that he has released confidential emails and memos in an effort to discredit the company's former management. He supported Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in his run for president and flatly stated his support for Republicans in the most recent congressional races. Asked why he had a strained relationship with his trans daughter, Musk's answer was, quote, communism, close quote. For the New York Times, this means Musk's political leanings are, quote, tricky to pin down, close quote. As Ari Paul writes for FAIR.org, the Times' December 10th article by Jeremy Peters acknowledged that Musk promotes anti-left theories and rails against wokeness, but says, quote, his enthusiasm for Republicans has been more muted, close quote. 
His support for DeSantis, for example, was not especially resounding because Musk merely replied yes when someone on Twitter asked him. Well, it was bad luck for the Times effort to demand that we find nuance in the fact that the day after that piece appeared, Musk tweeted, quote, my pronouns are prosecute Fauci, close quote, scoring a nuance-free twofer by winking to COVID conspiracy theorists and ridiculing trans rights. Paul notes that the Times might be reluctant to portray Musk's anti-union position as a right-wing trait, given that News Guild of New York members at the Times recently staged a one-day walkout, highlighting the paper's failure to reach a new collective bargaining agreement with the union. In an earlier piece on what the paper insists are the, quote, elusive politics of Elon Musk, close quote, the Times reported as a supposed contradiction the fact that Musk railed against federal subsidies, while at the same time, his companies have benefited from billions of dollars in tax breaks and other incentives from federal, state, and local governments. If the paper listened seriously to economic progressives, they might acknowledge that gobbling up corporate subsidies while opposing welfare for the masses is not complex or confusing. It's just garden variety hypocrisy. The media conversation around interest rate hikes and Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell suggests nothing so much as a cult in which profit is the profit and the sacrifice is working people. So writes Luca Goldmansour for FAIR.org about corporate media coverage of inflation, which holds maximal profits and scarcity for ordinary people as often unspoken premises. Latest Fed rate hike, more pain coming, was a recent USA Today headline, leading some to ask, well, pain for whom? And we're anti-pain, right? The online version linked to a story with working people rightly bemoaning the increases in their cost of living. But as more pain coming makes clear, USA Today doesn't provide any option for people like those in that article except the Rube Goldberg conveyor belt Powell and the Federal Reserve have constructed. The paper tells readers, quote, consumers should expect their costs to head even higher and job losses to mount as economic growth slows, close quote. But wait for it. The Fed's moves will, quote, ripple through the economy and ultimately hit businesses and consumers and slow demand and inflation, close quote. The Fed's actions are, of course, deserving of coverage, but for outlets to pay lip service to the needs of ordinary Americans, as if that's what's driving the Fed's decision to burden them further, is just obscuring the class war being waged. It's a kind of bait and switch that works to convince people that the scarcity they feel is an inevitable consequence of natural forces and not a political decision that need not be. And finally, the Washington Post had a headline December 16th, Can Politics Kill You? Research says the answer increasingly is yes. The lead of the article tells readers about two studies that reveal what the paper calls an uncomfortable truth 
quote, the toxicity of partisan politics is fueling an overall increase in mortality rates for working age Americans, close quote. But as Julie Holler notes, when you read further into the article, you find that politics isn't the problem here. One of the studies the Post reports found that, quote, people living in more conservative parts of the United States disproportionately bore the burden of illness and death linked to COVID-19, close quote. The other study found that, quote, the more conservative a state's policies, the shorter the lives of working age people, close quote. So the problem isn't so much politics as it is conservatism. Indeed, the article notes that one of the reports found that if all states implemented liberal policies on the environment, guns, tobacco, and other health-related policies, 170,000 lives would be saved a year. Still, the analysis in the piece centers around the idea that the problem is not right-wing ideology, but a lack of bipartisanship. That's to blame as, quote, the division in American politics has grown increasingly caustic and polarized, close quote. Do you know what would actually benefit politics in the United States? A media system that was willing to point out who was causing demonstrable problems rather than pretending that both sides are always to blame. Reporting like that might actually save lives. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The end of the Trump era will be unsatisfying, declared New York Times columnist Ross Dowdit this week. There will be no perp walk where Trump exits the White House in handcuffs. That's a little odd, given Trump's not in the White House. But the point is to reduce calls for accountability for obvious crimes to emotional, unreasonable cries for vengeance. It's the same way the Times told us we were entitled to wonder whether any of the highly paid executives who helped kindle the 2008 financial disaster will ever see jail time. But the paper told us the harder question is whether anybody should. So here we are again with Dowdit's advice that while the realities of Trump and Trumpians concerted premeditated efforts to overturn democracy are, quote, yielding some righteous anger, close quote, the intelligent takeaway is that, quote, an unsatisfying absence of repudiation or vindication is a normal feature of democratic life, close quote. The editorial board at the Wall Street Journal concurs that while the January 6th inquiry has done useful work gathering documents and putting witnesses under oath, the wiser course was to let the established facts speak for themselves. After all, the journal says, quote, Trump's ultimate goal wasn't to obstruct the congressional session on January 6th. He wanted it to go his way. This was nonsense and it had no chance of success. But was it a crime to lobby Mr. Pence to try? Close quote. So the upshot, lest you miss it, is that it's appropriate to feel anger and outrage about things. But directing it at the people who orchestrate and profit from it is childish and irrational. 
the sophisticated thing to do with our anger over fundamental assaults on our society's organizing principles is to diffuse it into droplets in the air that never actually land. So how do we resist this recipe for no change and turn information about what happened on January 6th specifically into accountability? Lisa Gilbert is executive vice president of Public Citizen and co-founder of the meaningfully named Not Above the Law Coalition. Welcome back to Counterspin, Lisa Gilbert. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's start concretely. Folks will have heard a swirl of stuff, but what are the charges against Donald Trump that come out of this congressional committee? And is there, respectfully, any sense that these charges are inflated or partisan or anything other than legal charges? Well, thanks for that. I think that the Herculean efforts of the January 6th Select Committee have really borne fruit. They laid them out in a clear, meaningful, and compelling way this Monday. Uh, We're still waiting for their final report to drop today, but the charges against Donald Trump were clear and followed in a clear through line from the evidence that the committee found in in a very bipartisan way. You know, most of their witnesses were high level Republicans who worked closely with the president. So the four charges were obstruction of an official proceeding, the proceeding being the January 6th meeting of Congress itself, where they had intended to certify the presidential results, Uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States. You know, this happened in, in multiple ways, including the president's lies about the 2020 election, lies about the vice president's role in certification and how it works among uh, many other lies, conspiracy to knowingly make a false statement. So this was the participation in the plot to submit the fake slates of electors. And then finally, assisting, aiding, or comforting, that's an interesting word, but comforting an insurrection. So, you know, helping to incite the attack, but then also assisting others who did so as well. So, you know, the reason for this charge is, you know, all the actions he took as the insurrection began to unfold, or actually the actions he did not take, you know, he did not, you know, call in additional assistance to the the Capitol Police who were under siege. He did not call the Department of Defense. Instead, he just sat and watched it all unfold on TV. So those are the four charges, I think, you know, very clearly outlined by the committee and very robustly supported by their work. Well, let me ask you, if I could, just another angle on it, What do you see as the harms of not bringing charges here? I think folks are eager to reduce it to partisan back and forth, but it's so much deeper. And and what happens if we if we just say, oh, you know, folks who like Trump like Trump, folks who didn't like him think something bad happened on January 6th? You know, what happens if we don't if we don't go forward? I think not going forward is a recipe for disaster for democracy, not to be overblown. I think we don't hold the bad actors accountable for what uh, was, you know, arguably the most dramatic and dangerous day in recent history of our nation. Then what can we hold people accountable for? And though it is true that, you know, referrals to other bodies, referrals to the DOJ or referrals to the House Ethics Committee are not the same as actually prosecuting or moving forward charges, 
the committee doing this sends such a clear signal and backup, if you will, to the DOJ as the special counsel there is working feverishly, as we know, um, to actually bring uh, charges that will stick. And so having this, this really clear evidential record is helpful. Well, let's just draw about that uh, in terms of the reality. So what came out of the committee is evidence, is information. And now we're at a place where that information can be used or not used. What What is the state of play here? That's right. So, you know, the committee is, as advertised, an investigative body. They have spent almost a year investigating, calling witnesses, looking at thousands of documents. I mean, it has been a truly robust, impressive, bipartisan effort, which led to the findings uh, in the report, the recommendations um, that we'll soon see about how to improve democracy, and then these referrals to, you know, our, our bodies of justice that can take it further. Certainly that that work, you know, is essential for laying the groundwork and outside understanding of regular people right. such that, you know, as the special counsel moves forward, we all already understand why and what and how important it is. Well, when you say take it further, I guess what I want to get at is I think a lot for the public, there's an important distinction to be made about Donald Trump and then what also enablers did. And the idea of even if Trump, you know, in some fanciful other planet goes to jail, will that still prevent another thing like this from happening? So there's an interest in sort of separating out the criminal charges against an individual and how do we also as a society address the problems that were obviously evidenced on that day. That's right. No, that that is definitely right. There is more than one solution needed to the problem of an insurrection. This is a piece of it, what we're talking about now, the individual who is most culpable being held accountable. And the fact that that person was the president of the United States makes it more important, not less, that we do, in fact, hold him accountable. Um, That's the piece the DOJ is pursuing. That's the piece that is being pursued in in Georgia prosecution. And, you know, we want to see it borne out. We want charges and we want them to stick. However, separately, we also need to reform our democracy such that no other president can ever be this bankrupt morally and, and can't do anything like this again. And so there are a lot of threads to that. One piece, actually, we had a victory this week. I don't know if people are, are paying attention to this, but the Electoral Count Act reforms, which we, which many of us yeah. uh, in D.C. have been lobbying for for months now, um, passed uh, or were included as a part of the year-end budget deal. So we'll soon pass. So this is, is critical because, you know, it could prevent the idea of, of the vice president uh, simply in his posture as, as chair of the Senate as he is, he is overseeing an electoral count could change what he's perceiving. So, you know, that sort of unclear language in the original Electoral Count Act is what Trump relied on and misled his followers around and certainly part of what sparked the insurrection. You know, assuming the Electoral Count Reform Act passes, that will no longer be an option. Uh, We need that and we need other reforms to continue to protect democracy to move forward as well. Well, let me ask you about those, because I, I feel like we're all getting kind of a civics lesson about what laws are meaningful, what laws it turns out they don't mean anything if you don't, uh, you know, 
push on them. And, you know, we're all learning a lot here. And I think a lot of folks are sort of thinking that their idea about what's right and what's wrong is somehow reflected in the law. And we know that that's an imperfect relationship. And so there are other things that we could make more sturdy. There are other things that we could back up in order to setting Donald Trump aside in order to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. What are some of those also? Well, certainly a lot of the reforms that we're talking about are contained in an omnibus legislative package called the Protecting Our Democracy Act, which we are hopeful could garner some bipartisan support, as did the Electoral Town Act reforms I was just talking about. So what it would do is, is shore up a lot of the loopholes that the Trump administration showed us exist. You know, as you say, you know, one of the, the main things we learned from his administration is that many things that we always thought were law are, were actually just norms. Right. <laughs> we're actually just things that presidents have always done, but they're actually not required to do. So take his, you know, his tax returns is a, yeah. a clear example of that. Um, you know, all presidents have always released them, but they were not apparently yet officially required to do so. So those kinds of things. So, you know, uh, some of the reforms carried within that legislation are things like improving our whistleblower laws so that it is easier for those within government who are seeing things that might be coming from an unhinged president. Um, mm-hmm. You know, those can be more easily shared and those people are protected things to shore up our inspectors general so that, you know, if pressure is being applied, you know, to agencies or across the country, they'll be able to to catch it and they'll be protected and, and won't have to fear being fired without cause. You know, those are just a couple things. But I think there are, you know, numerous places where where the fact that laws are not as clear as we once thought he was able to take advantage of that and and abuse our ethical assumptions. Absolutely. And, you know, okay, we can all learn, right? let's, Let's all learn together. I'm a media critic, and so I fault media to some extent with this framing of Democrats versus Republicans, you know, that encourages people to get to a place of, oh, you're mad at Donald Trump, you don't like his ideas, and that's why you want him to go to jail. And I just think that's so corrosive. It's like, well, if it was your guy who was inciting insurrection, you'd be for it, right? You know, like, and I just, I guess I'm, I'm hoping for more than elite media are giving us right now in terms of, Yeah, I understand they need to have voices, you know, from lots of different perspectives. But there is something very fundamental that I feel that journalists could be doing in terms of holding up the importance of democratic principles. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder what you would like to see from journalists right now. I think that's a fair critique. I think, you know, journalists have a responsibility to report the threats as they see them and and their legion right now. One thing that may help them cover more and and discuss this more is that the president, President Biden, has been leaning in quite a bit on these themes, you know, before the election, spending valuable, you know, last speechifying moments talking about the threats of MAGA Republicans to democracy and the the problems of hate speech and the issues of, of the insurrection and the idea that election deniers could perhaps win Luckily, many of them did not. But, you know, but that was a real threat. And he, he really spoke strongly about the problems with that. And so I think, 
you know, hopefully that kind of engagement on the part of the White House in turn makes it easier for journalists to spend more airtime for editors to um, want to include stories about how we can improve democracy from here. But, you know, agree. I think it needs it needs as much attention as it can get. And I think the American people feel that, too. Well, let me ask you, if charges were brought, if the January 6th commission evolved into indictments, would that mean the end of the not above the law coalition? What is your purpose there? That's a great question. I, I mean, you know, every policy group's idea is to be in place until you're, you put yourself out of business because you've won. So I, I am not sure. But, you know, certainly we have found a role around ethics scandals in, in many a moment. So I, I wouldn't want to believe that, you know, should we send Trump to jail, that then problem is entirely solved. So I imagine we'd still have things to do. But it's a great it's a great <laughs> question. Part of what's happening going forward is that, you know, January 6th, 2023 is coming up right on us. And I know that you have work planned around that. What's going on? Well, we are riding the wave coming out of the the select committee's final business meeting and report to memorialize what they've done, to celebrate it, and to talk about the need for democracy reform going forward. Uh, We're doing this by holding events all around the country on the second anniversary of the insurrection. Although anniversary is maybe too celebratory a word, uh, we will be memorializing it and and discussing what it means for democracy going forward. These events can be found at ourfreedomsourvote.org. And hopefully everyone who's listening can find one near them. And then if you're in the D.C. area, the flagship event uh, will be in front of the Capitol at noon. So I encourage everyone to come. Can I just ask you, what is the purpose? What's the intent of these events? Both to simply memorialize and remember the horror that was the insurrection, but also to pivot forward and to talk about you know, what it means to continue to fight for democracy, to push for voting rights reforms and campaign finance reforms and rule of law reforms, and to use the great work of the committee to sort of catapult us into the next phase of that fight. All right, then. We've been speaking with Lisa Gilbert, co-founder of the Not Above the Law Coalition and executive vice president of Public Citizen. Their work's online at citizen.org. Lisa Gilbert, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the media watch group FAIR, based in New York. If you missed part of today's shows or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to learn about our newsletter extra and to show support for Counterspin, if you are able and so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.